Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. We're continuing with our cardiac module for conference this month, and today we talked about aortic dissection, a workshop on syncope, and we also had a journal update that covered something very different, ATLS. Let's start with our core content lecture on aortic dissection. This was given by one of our PGY2 residents, Zandra Ortego, and covered a lot of basics in identifying aortic dissection, who to work up, and some initial medical management. Just a little background on dissection. It's a relatively rare diagnosis when you compare it to things like ACS. The numbers show that you'll see about 600 ACS patients for every dissection. On top of being rare, presentations are really variable and can be very subtle. On top of that, clearly the disease is life-threatening. This combination of rare, difficult to diagnose, and life-threatening makes it the perfect storm ED disease, and it keeps us up at night. The classic presentation of aortic dissection is tearing or ripping chest pain that radiates to the back. Unfortunately, we don't often see the classic patient. Xandro reviewed an excellent must-read paper for emergency physicians and providers, the IRAD article, which was published in JAMA back in 2000. This was a registry where they chart-reviewed cases to determine the frequency of symptoms, signs, EKG, chest x-ray, and other imaging findings. There's some surprising things that they found here. For instance, only 73% of patients with dissection presented with chest pain, although almost 96% had some kind of pain. Back and abdominal were the most common ones after chest. Of course, this means that 4% of patients were pain-free with their dissections. Additionally, only 72% had a history of hypertension, a classic risk factor we learn about. The classic physical exam findings that we learn about, unequal upper extremity pulses and blood pressure and the aortic insufficiency murmur, are terribly insensitive for the disease, although they are pretty specific. So if you find one of these, you should be concerned, but the absence of them is not very reassuring. Because of all these difficulties, up to 22% of cases go unrecognized prior to death. What can we do to pick up more of these patients? We need to start by doing a good history. Rossman and colleagues published an article in CHEST back in 1998 that showed our history is a little bit flawed. This group felt that the quality of pain, radiation of pain, and intensity of pain at onset were key factors in identifying aortic dissection. However, in their chart review, they found that only 42% of patients were asked about all three of these things. Now, there's lots of issues with this type of study, but the point is that we should ask every chest pain patient about these couple of issues. The critical questions to me are, was the pain that you experienced or are experiencing sudden and onset and maximal at onset? It's sort of the subarachnoid history, sudden and severe. In addition, we want to keep an eye out for unusual presentations. Look for the chest pain and syndrome, chest pain and headache, chest pain and abdominal pain, chest pain and neurologic symptoms. These are a typical presentation because the aorta links everything together. Don't ignore subtle complaints. Remember when I was a third year resident, we had a STEMI patient who came in and he told me that when the pain started, he felt weakness in his leg and that he couldn't move it, but now it was totally fine. This was our only clue to the dissection that the patient ended up having. He got an emergent CTA and was found to have a dissection from the root of the aortic valve all the way through the left iliac. This also brings up the point that about 3-5% to of dissections will have a STEMI on EKG, but overall the EKG is nonspecific and insensitive for dissection. Once you've got a suspicion, CT is going to be the imaging modality of choice, although you can pick up thoracic dissections, especially ascending ones, with a TEE or TTE at the suprasternal notch. A bedside ultrasound is really useful as well, as you may pick up aortic insufficiency here, and you can look for a pericardial effusion, which can occur with an ascending dissection. 
Once you've identified any dissection, whether it be ascending or descending, you want to get your CT surgeons on board for operative evaluation immediately. If the patient is hypertensive and tachycardic, which is the norm, medical management is going to be directed at anti-impulse therapy. You want to lower the heart rate and the pressure to decrease the striking of the pressure wave from the LV against the dissection flap, which should halt its propagation, or at least in theory, it'll help to halt the propagation of that dissection. The standard recommendation is to start Esmolol to bring the heart rate down, and then you can add something like Nicardipine if the pressure is still high. The big take-home points from this talk, most dissections don't fit the classic presentation. Think about it and look out for the unusual presentations of chest pain. Once you've identified the dissection, get your consultants on board immediately and institute anti-impulse therapy if the patient is tachycardic and or hypertensive. There's so much more to discuss on this topic. Last year, Rob Rogers gave a great talk on dissection that we put up on the All New York City EM podcast, and I'll drop a link to that in the show notes. Now, you can't have a cardiac module without discussing syncope. We did this in a small group style where we tackled three to four big questions. What are the high-risk features in syncope that should prompt the need for an inpatient evaluation? What are the life-threatening causes of syncope that, although rare, must be on your differential diagnosis? Should we treat syncope and near syncope differently? And what are the critical EKG findings to look for on every syncope patient? Starting with the high-risk features, I think many of these are intuitive. If the patient had severe chest pain or shortness of breath with their syncope, be concerned. Severe headache before syncope? Think about the aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. A couple of other things that were pointed out were exertional syncope and the lack of a prodrome before the syncopal event. If the patient felt lightheaded, dizzy, or as if their vision was tunneling in, I get a bit more reassured that vasovagal syncope may be at play. Of course, as with all things EM, we must assume the worst first and then work backwards to the non-pathologic diagnosis. Assume all syncope is bad and only get to vasovagal after you've thought about all of those other things. What about the rare, life-threatening causes of syncope beyond cardiac syncope? There are a number of things that we have to consider, including PE, AAA, ectopic pregnancy, subarachnoid hemorrhage, and tamponade. PE is a tricky one because you'd assume that if the PE caused syncope, it must be a big one, and the patient will still be sick appearing after the syncopal episode. In other words, a normal exam would be reassuring that PE isn't at play. Unfortunately, this doesn't pan out. Patients can have relatively small PEs and syncopize and have a relatively normal evaluation afterwards, although they may still have some symptoms that tip you towards PE. This probably has to do with the neurohormonal cascade that occurs when there's a clot in the lung vasculature. What about near syncope versus syncope? I think we used to think that pre-syncope or near syncope was a relatively benign process and nothing to worry about, but current thinking is a bit different. The same disease entities that cause syncope can result in just near syncope, so near syncope patients still deserve a good evaluation. We tackled this question on EM Lyceum a couple months back, and I'm going to drop a link to the show notes for that post. This was the EM Lyceum conclusion for that question of near syncope evaluation. Previously thought to be a benign diagnosis, recent literature suggests that like syncope, a non-insignificant proportion of patients with presyncope suffer serious adverse outcomes. Further studies are needed to determine which patients with presyncope are at higher risk for adverse outcomes, as we currently do not have clinical decision rules to guide our management for this patient population. Also in that EM Lyceum post, we looked at the use of non-contrast head CTs, troponins, and orthostatics in evaluation. Check out those answers on the EM Lyceum blog. Finally in this workshop, we reviewed the EKG findings you have to look for in every syncope patient. Obviously, we're going to be looking for the high-degree AV blocks and frank tachydysrhythmias. 
The subtle ones that you have to look for in every EKG are prolonged QTC, WPW or Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, Brugada, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and arrhythmogenic RV dysplasia. Finding one of these can save a life, and since some of them are genetic, you can save more than one life. We're not going to go into each of these abnormalities here in the podcast. I strongly recommend you checking out Amal Matu's EKG series for great teaching on all these topics and pretty much anything else that's EKG related. The site's now a pay site, but it is incredibly cheap, about $3 a month, and I don't think there's a better EKG site out there. If you don't want to pay, a lot of the videos from the old free site are available on YouTube. You can just search Amal Matu there. Dr. Smith's ECG blog is another incredible resource, and it's also free, so go check that one out as well. We also had a short journal update this week about an article that was published just a couple weeks back in Anesthesia, and that's the British spelling with the extra A. The article, ATLS, Archaic Trauma Life Support, stirred up a lot of conversation on Twitter and in the foam world. The basic arguments of the author is that ATLS isn't advanced care. It creates a basic framework for providers, especially junior trainees and people who work in low-volume or minimal-volume trauma EDs, to care for traumatized patients. However, those of us who provide care to lots of trauma patients at high-level trauma centers have to move beyond ATLS because the recommendations are outdated. More importantly, trauma care is too nuanced to simply follow a cookbook. We need to think about how we provide trauma care, and we should be training and practicing in a team structure with our trauma colleagues to maximize our efforts. This is a great short read, and later this year, the Smack podcast will have a talk from Scott Weingart that he gave on this same topic during Smack US back in June, so keep an eye out for that. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over to the site and see what we've got working. This week, we'll have a core content piece on epiglottitis, as well as a journal update on the use of TEE in cardiac arrest. Some great stuff. So come on over and check out the site, coreem.net. Visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at core underscore EM. 